right, it's happening. Not right now, Mal. I keep getting notifications when we're out of storage. All right. Um, this week we are going to be mainly reviewing one of the readings. So the the reading called Credit and Faith by Philip Goodchild is going to be mainly what we're taking a look at in the class. But that is almost like a commentary on the gospel passage for today's. Uh, service as well. And so I thought we might start off a little bit different and just open up with a time of silence. I'm going to read the gospel passage and then we'll pray to start. That way we have kind of a reference point because it'll be more like a deep dive on this passage uh, than just something more philosophical, although there are elements of that, of course, in what we'll be doing. So let's take a, a moment just to breathe together and be silent, and then I will read the passage to us and we'll pray. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating at this Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued to kiss his feet and anointing them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him, that she is a known sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would continue to meet us in this moment, continue to guide us here at the table as we learn about systems and how they impact us, how the rule and reign of mammon shapes our desire, how we are involved and wrapped up in something beyond our choosing. I pray that you would just continue to open our eyes Give us an imagination for a way of living faithfully today here in this place and time amongst our neighbors and as a people together. In the name of the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 There is a lot going on in this passage. I'm going to save some of this, some of the good stuff for the sermon. <laughs> I'm going to try to. But what we see at the at the beginning of this, when Simon is inviting Jesus to come and dine with him at his house, it's not just a simple invitation to just come and have coffee and cake. Uh, it's an extravagant hospitality game. So Good Child kind of enumerates the ways and the things, the work that that kind of thing could do in that culture. One of the ways, uh, one of the things that it does is it diffuses any potential threat that the person might offer. And so, you know, Simon sees Jesus as this up and coming rabbi who's starting to gain popularity and gain a following. And so is he a threat? Is he an ally? I don't know who he is. I'm going to have him come to my house. It's not necessarily just coming from this genuine place of like, oh, I want to be with him. Let's just commune together around the table. Another thing that this hospitality game can do is it can demonstrate one's status through their means and their resources. You know, if you come over and there's this elaborate dinner party, part of what's happening or part of what can be happening is you have now come to my home turf. I have like a home field advantage here, right? And you get to be impressed by the things that I've got going on. Simon in this story is outdone in this game of competitive hospitality hospitality by a woman of rude manners and of doubtful character. So even though this hosting was a type of power move, Simon is a very important figure. He's, you know, like kind of towing the line of like a political figure, also a religious leader. And so he's got very important things that he's concerned about. He sees Jesus as also being this important figure. And so it's important people gathering around a meal to talk about important things. It's all very, very important. <laughs> it's strange, though, when Simon is outdone in this hosting, in this hospitality by this woman, that what's most interesting to Simon is not the things that this woman does, but it's actually Jesus's reaction to what she's doing in their midst. To Simon, Jesus's apparent lack of purity or insight or self-control are all summed up in the thought that if this man were a prophet, then surely he would have understood the significance of the scandal of what's going on in this very important room around this table. The only thing more outrageous than this woman's actions to Simon are Jesus's response to them. And then Jesus's parable goes on to compare their positive gestures between Simon and, and this woman uh, with the gratitude offered in response to the release from a debt. So for God to forgive sins like a moneylender forgives debt is one thing, and probably something that a lot of us have experienced also in our Christian teaching uh, is to view sin as a debt, a debt that's owed, right? So to imagine God as erasing that debt is not completely foreign and wouldn't have been at this time either. But Jesus receiving gratitude for the forgiven debt actually is a totally different thing. And so you start to hear those questions at the end of this passage. Not only does it seem that Jesus is implying that he is in the position of this creditor that's forgiving a debt, but he confirms that he is equating himself with this creditor by declaring the forgiveness of sins. So for us, especially as we've been learning more about mammon, the way that it works on our imagination and our desires, the way that we interact in the world, this story exemplifies the consequences of replacing a Jewish legal framework where obligations are differentiated, they're qualified, and they're specific with an economic framework, which is what we have come to kind of inherit 
because of so many reasons. Matt did a great job of laying this out in week one in this like neoliberal age that we are in. We are totally ingrained in this economic framework. Uh, we're all very good capitalists in here, right? Or have been told our whole lives that we ought to be. But in an economic framework, obligations are conceived of as debts. Debts which are to be paid in the form of money, they're quantifiable, they're comparable, and they're transferable. So Goodchild says it like this. He says, while it might make no sense in terms of justice that another should be punished in my place, to regard punishment of the innocent as dispensation of justice is actually more typical of Pilate than it would have been of Paul. It can make perfect sense in this other way of viewing it, that another might pay my debt for me. So it seems totally outrageous that somebody would suffer a punishment for you, right? Like if Remy does something wrong and I punish Cameron for it, I think everybody in the room would be like, oh my gosh. But if Remy breaks something and Cameron replaces it, we start to have a different imagination for what's going on in, in that grievance, that particular issue. But a purely economic redemption does not equal social liberation. In a lot of Christian thinking, and a lot of Christian thinking that I was familiar with and trained in, really, even in, in Bible school about 12 years ago, <clears throat> the act of redemption saves you from one thing, but it actually saves you into, it redeems you into a new type of bondage. So this transfer of our sin debt renders you to be infinitely tied to this slavery. You, owe, you now don't owe a sin debt, but you owe a life debt to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's one way of thinking of it, right? An example of a passage that we might interpret this is uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Now, at first blush, I just want to say this, I mean, it's a grace. Sometimes I find that it feels like a grace that I have, that, that anybody remains a Christian, given where they come up in the church and like the things that we can experience, you know, whether it be teaching or abuses of power, anything like that. Uh, but even just referring back, like when you, when I read that passage now, it's hard for me to conceive of it as meaning anything other than one, that Jesus paid a price for my life and now my life is his. It's also not always readily apparent to me that that's a bad thing. Like there's something as we enter into this conversation that is like, it's peaking up my interest here about what that means, but we're like, so this is so deeply ingrained and baked into our logic for how this works that I think it doesn't even occur to us to be um, offensive or questionable in any way. And so good child does a really good job in this, in this um, reading that we had this week of giving us permission to question it and to kind of ask questions about what that really means. <clears throat> so for many, Christians live as slaves under an infinite reprieve as those who should have died. And now, because they didn't, they belong to their savior. However, in this story, in this passage that I just read, this is not the fate of the woman. This parable is not presented as an analogy for the universal human condition, but it is explicitly directed to Simon in this passage. Jesus's comparison of Simon and the woman inverts and, and therefore it mocks any display of power based on the ability to provide hospitality. Any competitive concern with status acts as a barrier to genuine relationships. 
So Simon's desire to hold court, so to speak, to, to have this very important meeting because he's a very important person is actually getting in the way of him having a real relationship with God in the flesh, with Jesus. But Jesus is turning that approach to making one's way in the world on its head. Far from holding any competitive concern with status, the woman looks to Jesus for salvation from her life of abuse, her life of exploitation and exclusion. But the story concludes not with her owing him the debt of her life, but with Jesus dismissing her and saying, now go in peace. No further services are required. Far from being newly enslaved to Jesus, she is released. She is freed totally. Good Child does some really interesting work with sussing out what Jesus is doing in the forgiveness of sins and this decree, this commissioning for this woman to go in peace. But he makes the point that ultimate authority is not claimed by Jesus for himself in this passage. But it's attributed to his gospel of the forgiveness of sins. So actually, the abolishment of judgment and debts, it is the basis for changing lives and restoring community. So Jesus isn't saying, okay, you think power works this way, but actually I've got the power to do either do this or not do this. But the power is actually existing in and of itself. The power to change lives and restore community lies in that decree, the forgiveness of sins, in that mercy. His judgment is love. Jesus' announcement actually has a transformative effect that enables this woman to go in peace, to go and love. Good child says it like this. He says, the forgiveness of sins at once creates the opportunity for her love, redeems her from an unpaid obligation, and it makes a judgment about the possibility of transformation through faith and forgiveness. So the woman's show of great love when she arrives on the scene is actually an empty promise. But Jesus's announcement has a transformative effect that actually enables her to truly love. He offers her the substance with which to pay her self-imposed debt of love and loyalty. So she, she's coming. The passage says that her sins were forgiven, hence she came and showed this love, right? But she doesn't know Jesus and is kind of only scratching the surface of understanding what's going on in, in the midst of this. But Jesus's decree to her that her sins are forgiven and that she's now free to go in peace is create like opening up space for there to be a new imagination, new reality to go in love. There's a lot, there's a lot going on here. This kind of reminds me of in uh, Les Mis where Jean Valjean is released from prison after years and years, and he stays with a bishop. And then when he's leaving the bishop's house, he steals some silver, some candlesticks, and he goes off and he's caught. So the authorities catch this guy who clearly has just been released from prison. He doesn't look like he should be walking around with tons of silver on him. And so they arrest him. They bring him back to the bishop's house. But the bishop lies to the authorities and says, oh, actually, these were gifts. And, you know, these other, these other pieces of silver you forgot to take with you as well. And he gives them to him in this beautiful moment of grace. And in, in the musical, Jean Valjean is questioning what is like, what just happened to me? And is in prayer and is saying, yet why did I allow that man to touch my soul and to teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. 
My life, he claims, for God above. Can such things be? Such a startling, unexpected act carries weight that goes far beyond immediate effect. There is immediate effect. The forgiveness of sins. The non-accusation of the stealing of this silver. But the weight of it goes far beyond just that immediate effect. Because a, a lavish gesture like this, this experiment in grace opens up space for Jean Valjean to wonder, to imagine a different sort of life for himself, a life belonging to God. The same is true of the woman in this passage. Not only does Jesus not shame her, not send her away with a weighty call into a new type of debt or slavery to himself for saving her. Instead, his very proclamation of the erasure of her debt, the forgiveness of her sins, opens up space for her to be sent out in peace, to actually be sent out in peace. Just not, not just nominally. This is why part of what we do every week is we pass the peace and we try to like teach and imagine that. And a lot of us are just like very familiar with this being a time just like to see people and say hello. But it's like it is a political proclamation. We are we're gospeling each other. We're proclaiming good news. The peace of the Lord be with you. And so it's more than just something that we say. We are actually proclaiming good news. So Jesus's very proclamation of the erasure of her debt opens up space for her to be sent out in peace. Daring to imagine a different type of life, she's sent out imagining a life where she is able to commune with God. In Jesus's gospel, qualitative distinctions whether they were grounded in law or nature, are suspended in favor of a higher calling, a calling to the law of love. We, with this imagination for what's going on in this passage, this like non-legalistic framework for the forgiveness of sins or this transference of debt from, now you don't owe a sin debt, but you owe a debt of your life to Jesus. If we're holding that in our hearts, we can see in, in other parts of scripture how this is being spelled out. It's continued to be a part of Christian teaching. So in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, this is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there's like a totally different logic at work here. It's not just, oh, you. Th- this is the logic, you know, from B to Z, you just had A wrong. It's not the same logic at work with just a different capstone. It is a totally different logic. It's a different DNA. This is, I think this is what it means to be reborn because you can't change something's DNA. But when you change the entire framework for its existence and its whole imagination for living, that, that thing's DNA, its core its core convictions and the way that it goes throughout the world is changing. And I think that is what this Christian life is all about. Romans 13, eight says, Oh, no one, anything except to love one another. We see in this passage that the gospel doesn't do away with differentiation and mediation, but instead the gospel is proclaimed precisely through differentiation and mediation. This story exemplifies Jesus's characteristic way of thinking. That's his presence and his posture in the world. And that presence and that posture are what we are being invited to embody and to live into ourselves. Not just 
a theoretical law or framework that we can give mental assent to, but we are being pulled into the life of God, a life of communion with the three in one God, a life with each other where we belong to each other, where we don't have to host dinners and show who we are and how good we are doing things to earn our place. Our, uh, so I think a church, one of the churches that I used to go to would always say uh, it was a charismatic church. And this was like good news. This was supposed to be good news. Your gift will make a way for you, which is like, depending on how gifted you see yourself, I guess could be like, okay, cool. <laughs> but like totally structurally at a structural level misunderstands what it means to be human. Like you are a gift. Your presence is a gift, not your giftedness is like what earns you a place in the community. And this is a new, this is a totally different lens and framework. I'm going to get into this a bit more in my sermon, but I think that a lot of what I was sensing this week in preparation is especially around this table in this gospel passage is like our, our understanding and our thought processes around trying to do good. Like when we try to step out and do something good and it feels risky or we don't know what we're doing. I think a lot of times we feel like we have to get it right. We have to like figure it out before we can do something. Or when you do dip your toes into these waters for trying to like activate for justice, it actually doesn't simplify things it makes them like, it compounds the complication exponentially because at a structural level, we can kind of like pontificate, right? And like make observations all together in a room. But when we like leave this room and we try to work for justice, just per, justice person to person, like there's a whole wealth of meaning that we don't have access to in that person to person interaction. But there's a freedom, I think, that we're being pulled into to be activated for justice. Uh, like I said, I'm going to talk more about it in my sermon. So I don't want to do, I don't want to do a spoiler alerts, but I feel like there's just so much going on here. <laughs> so in summary, Jesus is breaking from the, the existing order, the presumed order, the entire logic of a culture, the whole logic that we've even projected onto this parable or this tale of what it means to be in debt or to have someone pay your debts for you. Jesus is breaking from that, those assumptions so that judgments are set aside. But his suspension of judgment is itself a judgment. Instead of claiming the right to forgive sins, an alternate reading suggests that the rule of God is only manifest in mercy. Jesus is illuminating that supreme power consists of the act of forgiving sins. So, Jesus isn't claiming the power for himself to be able to forgive sins. Jesus is shining a light on the fact that supreme power consists in the act of forgiving sins. The rule of God is only manifest in mercy. The content of Jesus's proclamation is not his personal authority, but the forgiveness of sins itself. So, any questions? That was, that's basically, no, I, I, I wanted to do a review of the reading. This is probably my favorite reading so far from the Mammon series. Uh, it's also like very hard to keep this contained just to Mammon because it 
it feels like it bleeds into like our whole imagination for the character of God, what it means to be human and how to live our lives as a result. But I do think at the crux of this reading is this understanding of debt and having someone pay your debt for you. And the way that we have some assumptions at work already about like, oh, Jesus paid my debt. So now I'm going to work for Jesus for the rest of my life. But that's not what we're being saved for or saved into. So I'm, I'm happy to hear if, you, if there's reflections or questions, but also I just wanted to ask the question about where you guys are seeing connections between the mammon study that we've been doing for the last four weeks and this passage and this teaching. Were you raising your hand? Uh, I, that's what I was noticing. It was a kind of raised hand. <laughs> Uh, I, I want to maybe like just tack something on this. Like, um, there's a lot of conversation. We're gonna, let's move the laptop around again. Just so we make sure we get. I'll, I'll grab it and then I'll throw it back to you. Um, uh, there's a lot of conversation about systemic sin or structural sin in our world today and, and some debate about whether it exists and how it exists, et cetera. And I, I want to just point out that meals were systems. The meal was a system. It had a coherent logic. It did work. Everybody agreed upon it. There were customs. There were conventions. There was a, it had its own language, its own liturgy that, that everybody just assumed as they came. Right. And this and that system um, was a way of accruing and accrediting social capital It was a way of making deals where uh, the person who hosted the meal, maybe the top of the food chain, would would give gifts to people underneath. And those people who gave gifts would receive them with Thanksgiving and then they would do things in return. And so there was this exchange, like a social economy would happen here. Okay, so I just want to point that out, like. When we talk about systems, we just mean things that function with humans that are bigger than any one human choosing to make that do that. So maybe we could talk about that if that's important. But then also what happens, every single meal Jesus is at, he is screwing with the system. Even, even the thing that we are told makes the religious leaders like the most mad. It isn't that he claims to be God. It's that he eats and drinks with sinners. You're doing meals wrong. You're screwing with the system. Right? So I just want to point that out because I don't think that I, I come to the scriptures seeing systems and noticing what they do. But this is definitely an instance of that. And we can say more about how Jesus screwed with the system, but I just wanted to name that. Kind of along those lines, and I, I swallowed an amplifier when I was leaving, so I could just be loud. Um, <laughs> um, I have lots of random thoughts in my head, so let's see if I can make them coherent. But I'm struck by the idea that, like, in God's economy, justice leads to flourishing. Right, the idea that everyone flourishes, and so what you just said about we're not saved out of one debt and into a different debt, we're now on like an indentured servant to Jesus for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I am saved out of my debt 
to flourish mm -hmm. in the same ways that like the way we're trying to go against existing systems is with the goal of everyone flourishing. So where like a poor person in Jesus's time might have paid off their taxes only to just be like unable to feed themselves. And this is where my logic gets a little stuck. But the, the whole idea is that ultimately his goal is for everyone to flourish. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, that just keeps running through my head as we're talking about all this. But it's not just uh, money economically. Yeah, right. It's right. Every, mm -hmm. like in every aspect of, yeah. of our lives. Yeah. I mean, I, I think whenever I'm like reading this type of passage, it's, I still have to do like active work to not be thinking about God and life uh, on this, like, as if it's all about this cosmic scorecard, just like tallying up and like, God's trying to like yes. get all these X's off, you know, so that then we can be right. But he's actually saving us for the life that like what creation is for and why we exist is not to not break rules. God didn't create so that we can learn to not break rules, but to flourish. Yeah. To like really live. And part of that, part of what we're being saved to, I think in this passage is being connected and interrelated to each other. And so I think that's part of what's going on with Jesus messing with those systems about who can be around the table. You know, these tables were doing active work to stratify, stratify community, right? Like, just so we're clear, we got to, we got to know who can be here and who can't be here and who can sit where at the table. And Jesus is messing with all of that for the purpose of flourishing, not because he's like, you got it wrong. Here's how to get it right. Sylvia. I don't know. I don't, I don't love doing this, but I'm going <laughs> to. So in my mind, it seems that Forgiveness and hospitality are intertwined. One leads to the other, and the other leads to the other. Mm -hmm. So Jesus' act of receiving her hospitality was actually part of the forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And he didn't reject her. Mm -hmm. So, and then me being forgiven by God is a radical act of hospitality. It's inviting the one, the betrayer in. Yeah. And so I'm not sure we can disconnect them. And I think if you're in a situation where you're creating a place of hospitality, the last thing you want your guests to do, for some of us, is to have to repay that. And mm. Paul speaks of this. Don't, don't entertain, maybe it's not Paul, but whoever speaks of this says, don't entertain people just so they can repay you in kind. Entertain those who can't repay you. Yeah. And so this, this understanding that my sins forgiven, cast into the depths of the sea, is so hospitable, so open, so welcoming of me the way I am. Yeah. And I, yes, I uh, owe my allegiance, I owe my trust, and need to grow in my trust of that. Yeah. But I don't owe a debt. Yeah. And Jesus is not asking me to repay him over and over again. Yeah for this magnificent thing that he did yes it is truly a gift yeah and it's not to be and to reject it would to be scorning yeah what he did mm -hmm. and so um i i think of christ recapitulated everything so he recapitulated hospitality yeah 
and what it really means. I just want to share one experience. I went, I walked the Camino, the last 75,000 Camino in 2019. Mm -hmm. And I went there with this idea, this hope and prayer that I would see Christ in everyone that I met. Mm. And the way I saw it was startling. And it was their hospitality. Mm. They planted trees beside the road so that you could pick the fruit. That was for the pilgrims. Now they've been doing this since the 900s. So yeah. they're pretty good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I came around the corner on the trail one time and there was this woman. I couldn't speak her Spanish. I couldn't speak her language. And she had a handful of horse chestnuts. And she offered them to me. And I really didn't need them, but I thought, oh, this is seeing Christ. Mm -hmm. And it was through her hospitality and her gift to me. So I took the horse chestnuts as an act of gratitude yeah. and an act of recognition. And it was truly life-changing. I mean, I can't tell you how many times this happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. just so amazing. Wow. So practicing radical hospitality. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And I think actually, I think that's great. There's like 10 things that I want to respond to in that. But one thing, one thing that you said that I, uh, I was noticing in preparation for this. And also just as we're talking already is, um, I think that like baked into my body and my bone level beliefs about Christianity is this like fear of like, you said something about, uh, hot, like being welcomed by Christ's hospitality, just as you are, or something like that. And there's a thing, there's this thing that I've been like trained and coached and formed into that's like, oh yeah, so if everybody's just fine how they are, then why would they change, right? Like, is it, are we just, is this a, a feel good thing where nobody has to do anything anymore? Um, which that's like the fear, right? It's like um, this fear impulse of like, what are we losing? And if we can actually use the fear appropriately, then we'll behave better. I could go on and on about this, but I just want to say like the type of hospitality that you experience and that you're talking about and that we're talking about in this gospel passage is a type of hospitality that is transformative. It's not like, oh, good. I'm just fine where I'm at. Now I can never change and I can just feel better about where I'm at. Like, first of all, that doesn't really feel like it's resonant with the human experience at all. If you actually talk to people, like I don't know a lot of people that are like, I'm great. And I don't want anybody to challenge me. <laughs> But the act of this hospitality, of being welcomed the way that you are, sends you out in a way that you can't be the same. It's what you said about John Valjean. Yes, yeah. John Valjean was so compelled by this radical act of hospitality. You took from me and now it's yours. That he had no choice but change. Mm -hmm. And it sent him into a struggle with who am I? Yeah. And I can't be the same person and that's how Christ is. Yeah. It's radical. Yeah. Amen. It's good. All right. Any other thoughts? Questions? Chat? Anything you're finding challenging about this? I've got one observation, so I'd like to share. We hear almost nothing about angels in the New Testament. The only time we hear about angels in the New Testament is when we're dealing with hospitality. Both times. And there's something about, and then and then I want to say something else too. Last year when Michael Gonzalez led us through that study on whiteness, 
he talked about um, one of the things that colonialism has robbed from us is the ability to join with. We, we, we know how to conquer, we know how to provide, we know how to extract, we know how to dominate. We don't know how to come underneath as a Gentile entering a Jewish faith. And there's something about joining from a place of powerlessness and need in hospitality that inverts how we use that word. Because when somebody says, I, you know, in, a, in the common nomenclature, I have the gift of hospitality, what they mean is I love to provide and, and give and welcome and, um, you know, and, and I think when we hear about hospitality, even in when Jesus sends out the disciples, he says, go into the towns, right? And uh, proclaim the kingdom of God and eat the food set before you. I'm sorry, heal, eat the food set before you and proclaim the kingdom of God is in your midst. And I, I typically hear that, I think, from a colonial mindset, which is I came and healed you. Yeah. And now you're giving me food because, you know, labor deserves its wages. And that healing was the kingdom. But the way that Jesus talks about it is the healing and the feeding is this relationship of reciprocity. And in that reciprocity is the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And I just, there's something about the divine encounter from a posture of joining where we are receiving even as much as we're giving that I, I feel like I'm just now beginning to see and desire. One of the reasons that Jesus actually like um, chose Abraham as like the father of you know all these people is because of his radical hospitality, and it's like he had no idea who this God was. So it's not like he was you know like you know he had this relationship with God already, and God's like, sweet, you're my guy. It was like God saw this like radical hospitality that he was doing like with his family and stuff, and then God was like, okay, you're my guy because of that radical hospitality, and then it was like that was passed on through the generations. And I think the thing that's um, like going back to this mammon conversation, the thing that I'm always bumping up against is this, um, like just the scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. And I think especially, especially in like, you know, in America and stuff, this idea of like, well, you can't give more than you have because that's not wise. Or mm -hmm. like, you always have to make sure that you like have enough or, you know, it's like, it's like buffer, buffer it out and give like a little bit because that would be really unwise to get more. And it's like, you see in the Bible time and time again, these people, you know, it's like when, when um, the two angels come to Abraham and he tells Sarah to make bread, they make, she makes, I forget the amount, but it's like an absurd amount of bread. Like two people could not eat this much bread. And, but it's just like, it's just, he goes above and beyond. They use, you know, they use all their resources to care for these people and God will always provide it. You know, it's like, we, we feel like we can't because then we won't have enough instead of saying like, actually, what if we trusted that like we could give enough and then God would all like, and other people would be giving enough back to mm -hmm. us and God would provide that enough. Um, and I just noticed for me, that is such like a challenge because I live in such a scarcity mindset. Like if I don't buffer myself out, I will not have enough and saying like, I can have someone over for dinner and if they end up eating more food than I expected them to, like, that's okay. And God will provide more, food, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I think that radical hospitality thing, I think we have, especially in my experience, hospitality was always this like 
you have the gift of uh, hospitality. Great. And like we've sort of like demeaned it as like this sort of like, we don't really know what you're doing here, so you can be hospitable. Um, <laughs> that a lesser gift. Yeah. You don't yeah. know what your gift is, so it's probably hospitable. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like just that idea of like flipping that on its head and being like that, that is the actual the gift that like Abraham was mm. Become, like you know like became the father of the Israel nation for like hmm. I don't know I just think that and I think it draws us back into that idea of like trusting in God's provision for us instead of our own provision for ourselves and there's some in swirl after that but um I think that's been really helpful <laughs> that's been really eye-opening for me just to kind of think about that <laughs> Um, that word uh, reciprocity. Reciprocity. Yeah, I was sitting there thinking oh, about that. Actually. I can't hear you over there. Oh, the um, the word reciprocity um, has been kind. Of, I've been thinking about that, and before it was mentioned, um, I actually was talking about it here, um, mumbling about it. Um, but that, that it just seems like um, what's come to me is that Jesus turned a social structure on its head because the piece that maybe was mentioned, I didn't hear it, was if you invite someone um, to your house and you do a lavish meal, it's expected that they will invite you to their house and one up you. Mm -hmm. And so if you're poor, you don't want to be invited. <laughs> and it kind of makes me wonder what one of what Simon's motive was. Um, inviting Jesus as well, mm -hmm. but that Jesus turns that on its head and, uh, you know, um, addresses that structure that is so insidious mm -hmm. and redefines hospitality. And I had never put that together. So mm -hmm. that's really cool. That's great. Sure. <laughs> Uh, ben and I tried to talk about this in the book that we wrote, um, but there's some reckoning with power, I think, in this story that I don't quite know how to name. We tried to name it, but Jesus is doing two things at least. The first is he's inhabiting an established power structure that has its own way of working. And he redistributes power within that system. Does that make sense? So then he 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 asks the guy if he can, Simon, if he can say something. And it's his teacher, teach. But what happens? Does Jesus teach? Who teaches? The woman. The woman. So Jesus takes his teaching capital and gives it to the woman. That lifts her up in status. And at the same time, shames the person with high status and lowers him. You guys see that? And he he's the one who's basically uh, creating the anxiety needed to do that. So Jesus makes things awkward, right? But he does it to lift up somebody at the expense of the powerful person, the Pharisee who's honorable too, right? So there's some redistribution of power in the existing system. But he's also undoing the system. He's also making, he's also exposing the system to, 
to be something that excludes and is insufficient for the work of the kingdom. So as he redistributes power in the old system, he's redefining what power is. It's not the ability to host. It's the ability to serve. It's not the ability to control. It's the, abil- it's the audacious impudence to demand acceptance. And I don't know how, so those are two dynamics that aren't separate, but there's a redistribution and a redefinition that are happening simultaneously. And I think Jesus does this all the time, all the time. And I, I think our task is to creatively experiment with doing those things. And I, uh, you know, I feel incompetent mm. to do that, but it's, it's exceedingly provocative for me. I just want to name that thing that's happening. I'm not sure that's the best way to name it, but it's going to be in a book. So maybe second edition. You guys can... <laughs> it's almost like you're saying Jesus wasn't telling Simon to be more like that woman in his heart. No. <laughs> okay. I just want to make sure I'm understanding. Uh, I have a question too. Oh, uh, for you. young man in the front. <laughs> uh, so I know like, um, this is a weird picture for me. Someone crying, using their tears to clean feet with their hair. Is that a weird picture? Like there's no comp I have for that. Thank you. You know? Like, what's going on <laughs> Hard to say. Who can say for sure? Should I keep the recording going? Uh... <clears throat> I mean, I'm going to talk about this in my sermon more, so I don't want to, I wanted to do that in church. It just feels safer to do it there. Yes, there's no questions. It's a good point. Subconsciously, that's probably one. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think I'll I'll talk about it, but I'll talk about it in the sermon more. (laughs) The, uh, like, we think of this woman as kind of like a little bit awkwardly crashing this party and I, I think that's part of how we miss some of the depth of what's going on here. So she's, most scholars think of her the way that she's described as being a prostitute, a known prostitute in the town coming. So it's not just that some woman who is like not that well-behaved is coming. She is also like thought to be a sex worker. So she shows up at this very important dinner with these religious and political leaders as a sex worker. Uh, in the Bible, basically anytime feet are mentioned, it usually has something to do with genitalia. So Saul went into the cave and covered his feet, presumably to relieve himself. Uh, Ruth uncovered Boaz's feet and they lay together. So there's different things that are going there, but usually feet is a euphemism for not feet, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Can I, can I add one that? So that when, uh, when Isaiah is in the temple, and he sees the cherubim has six feet, two he covered sides, two he covered his mouth, and two he covered his feet. Scholars think that that's it's a euphemism for genitals. Like feet are a euphemism, all in the Old Testament, in a Hebrew mind for genitals. It's like saying it's like saying the weird thing without saying it. Yeah. Yeah, I used to have this thing in my family called uh angel eyes that we would plug into the TV 
I think oh, that's yeah. what it's called. And it would, anytime there was like a curse word or talk about sex, uh, it would come up with subtitles. And whenever it would say the word sex, it would say hugs. <laughs> so it'd be like, they're having hugs. And we are like, we know what they're saying. Anyways, think of feet as hugs in this situation. Not exactly. Okay. So yeah, before we get too far off the rails, not only that, so feet maybe is not just feet which was already weird enough. I don't know what it means exactly, but it's weirder than we even thought. And this woman is not only washing Jesus's feet with her tears, but she's drying his feet with her hair, which culturally for her to have her hair down would have been also thought to be inappropriate. So uh, I, you know, I don't want to use my purity culture jokes all up in the class. This is part of writing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's basically like if you were raised in purity culture, it's kind of like she is wearing like spaghetti straps, okay? Uh, only probably worse. Uh, so there's more going on. So anyways, this woman is not just like a woman who like wandered into a bar and ended up at a dinner she wasn't invited to. She crashed this party intentionally as like a known prostitute in that area. And whatever's going on in here, it's way more offensive than we read at first blush. Like we think of it as weird, like she's washing his feet with her hair. Well, culturally they would have washed their feet. So da, 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 da. it's like, no, 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 like it's way weirder. It's not just like a culturally it's odd to us. It's like intentionally provocative. It gets the people going. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't mean to, I don't mean to insinuate that it's anything else because then we'd have a whole lot of other questions. No, it's just, uh, even if, let's just say it's just, it's definitely just feet washing. Uh, let's, let's just say that because I don't know for sure, but it's probably that, uh, I think the picture that I would like to paint if I could paint one would be that like, she's not just like, Oh, I don't have a towel. Let me like use my hair to dry his feet. I think that everybody at the table was like very uncomfortable. It's like, Hey, there's like a known prostitute, like rubbing Jesus's feet with her hair right now. And that would have been like way more than her just being like somebody that wasn't respected using like a washcloth instead of like the official foot towel. So. I think the play on the intimacy though, right? Like both of these things are very intimate things. And so I think that's the provocative play on it, right? It's, it's, I would agree that it's probably the key to this situation, but the provocativeness of what she's doing mm -hmm. mirrors the provocativeness of what a writer would use as a euphemism of engaging her in this way. And so for me, it, it just reiterates that like, this is a big deal, what she was doing. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was scandalous for a woman to have her hair down in public because you put your hair down as a demonstration of your sensuality. And it was culturally reserved for like marriage. So not only is her hair down, it's down in public. And she's using her hair to touch a man that's not her husband. There's just kind of an accumulation of scandal. So I 
to me, it's important to, to feel that because it's even more audacious what Jesus does on her behalf. Right? It's even more audacious what he does on her behalf. Well, what's happened, I think what's happening as we, why I'm so nervous to talk about this and also what's happening in the room, I think is like, makes us a little uncomfortable to reckon with some of what maybe is happening here, you know? And I just think at around that table, there was no question that everybody's like, okay, Jesus is definitely not following the Billy Graham rule, but what is going on between him and this woman? This is inappropriate. You know, I don't, I'm not saying Jesus was having sex with this woman at the table. I'm not saying that. <laughs> Yeah. So I've always heard this talk about that that these kind of gatherings were more a, a spectacle for the neighborhood, for the community, and she wouldn't have been the only one big question or mm. observing from the outside. Mm. Is that not true? Um I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. I know the way that it's mentioned that she's there. I know she's not supposed to be there. So I definitely think that the dinner, it's my understanding of these meals is that it is a spectacle. I don't know if it was done in a way that was public that people could be like, you know, like peering over shoulders to see the dinner, but people knew like, Oh, Jesus is going to Simon's house tonight. And probably like all the top mucky mucks were like, yeah, I think I'm going to like move some things around and make sure I can get to this dinner. Um, but for her to like just come up to the table for sure is a level beyond. So there could have been other people there observing potentially. I'm sure that, I'm sure that there was like, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. My assumption is that the table, let's say it's a 10 seater. There's probably like, you know, 15 or 20 people crammed in there. Cause like people really needed to be at this meal. Right. And there's probably even more people that are like, they're trying to participate in what's going on. Um, but that's really all we know about this meal, I think. Thanks for bringing that up, Matt. Because <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to watch me up here do this? <laughs> uh, if you get too close to me, I'm going to make you feel really awkward. <laughs> Uh, only do it for people I love. Now, um, I think this woman, like women in our day, paid the price for how men control their bodies. And I think it's important to name and notice how Jesus interacts with women because um, I think what he's doing here is powerful. Powerful. Notice there's no rebuke of her sex with None. None. There's no, push your hair up and go home. None. And so Jesus sees how power works and consistently advocates for the powerless, the exploited, and the used in the presence of people who control the show without policing them, rebuking them, correcting them. And I have something to learn from that. And I, and I think, um, and I, I don't feel comfortable uh, imagining what other people, like somebody who feels connected to, for instance, 
per shank. Hmm. I don't know if they have to look that. But I, I, I think we need to bear the awkwardness to suss out what Jesus is doing. Because hmm. it's important. Like, we need that today, too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even just, I joked about the Billy Graham rule, but this is, I was like so steeped in that type of church culture. That's like, it would be so weird for me to be out to lunch with a woman. That's not my wife, that it would be inappropriate. And so at least one of the many things Jesus is doing in this passage is he's desexualizing this relationship so that there's actually room for intimacy in a way that there wasn't before. And a lot of people that have come to the table have talked about the fact that we were brought up not thinking that we are allowed to be friends with the gender that we are attracted to, because that, that would make your, your spouse or your partner jealous, or that would open room for temptation or whatever. And then it actually is a vicious cycle because then all you start to see that person as is this object of potential risk instead of as a person. So there's, I mean, there's probably at least a whole series about that to do, but <sighs> alas, our time is up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. I think that's it for today. Thanks everybody for coming. See you over there. <laughs> <laughs>